breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser with you again this week on podcast Reform This on Blaze TV's podcast network. It is always an honor to be with you. Thank you for joining me. If you've been here before, thank you for coming back. And hopefully, if you're new, you're looking for not only a voice of reason, but an American Muslim who's willing to stand up, to call a spade a spade, to be real about where we are as a Muslim community and the reforms that need to happen to actually begin to change the ideas that fuel and foment radicalization. Always, every week, there's a lot to talk to you about, but here... In the short time we have together, every weekend and whenever you might be listening to this podcast, that's released every Saturday at uh, blazetv.com backslash podcast. You can also find me on iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud. Share, subscribe, tell your friends about it, because I don't think you'll find another podcast anywhere by an American Muslim patriot, somebody who loves his country, loves his constitution, and is focused on defeating radical Islam, focused on defeating political Islam, the ideas that foment radicalism. This week, we've had a few arrests, more arrests of ISIS adherents here on our soil in Georgia and here in Arizona. We've seen four Americans killed in Syria, just as President Trump had announced the withdrawal. We've seen Bizarre comments from the new members, Muslim members of Congress, and a courageous Turkish NBA star who is unable to go to London. He's afraid he'll be attacked, taken by the Turkish government, and posted a video that I found unbelievably courageous, and I think a benchmark for where American Muslims should be when fighting radical Islam. So first, with the most important thing, to talk about what happened in Syria. It goes without saying that our hearts and prayers are always with any service member that gives the ultimate sacrifice. We lost four Americans this week in a suicide bombing in Syria, in an area in which our troops were present, and on the verge of being withdrawn. Two of our troops, a contractor, a translator, four Americans were killed, slaughtered by a suicide bomber, and ISIS adherent. ISIS took credit for it. So what is the message here? I I think the sad part, and this was certainly, I don't believe, intentional, but you, you saw Vice President Pence and then President Trump tweet actually hours after, perhaps at the same time, who knows. It obviously was likely unintentional, but I think is a metaphor of the problem with our current policy there. Tweeting about victory, that we had achieved victory and it was time to bring our troops home. The most flagrant of the sort of mission accomplished bonanza that reminded me of President Bush 43's mission accomplished banner across 
the aircraft carrier in 2003 that somehow because we had defeated Saddam, the mission was over. We then not only had to have a surge four or five years later because of all of the terrorism and radicalism that had been to um, metastasize through Iraq, but we then lost the peace, though, no thanks to President Obama and his complete withdrawal and sycophancy towards Iran. But having said that, you cannot help but just pull your hair out at the metaphor of a sign that said mission accomplished would change the narrative, changed the expectation of the American public that had it been presented appropriately, had it been understood what could or could not be accomplished in Iraq, perhaps may have had a whole different assessment of what we did or did not do or failed at doing, despite the unbelievable price and blood and treasure that we gave to the Iraqis to free themselves from the scourge of dictatorship, of tyranny that was one of the most evil tyrannies in the planet, which was Saddam Hussein. But at the end of the day, it was not mission accomplished because of thousands of reasons that we could begin to 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 discuss here. But my point is, repeatedly we've seen President Trump now talking about victory. Yes, and I've talked to you about this before. We achieved significant decimation of ISIS in Syria with simply a few hundreds, at the most 2,000 troops. We lost four troops in the last three years doing that. The Kurds lost 10,000, and thousands more lost among many in the Syrian community fighting both the ISIS militants, Al-Qaeda, Jabhat al-Nusra, and the Assad regime. We did that within six months, though, of Secretary Mattis taking over, and a president who allowed our Secretary of Defense to do what's necessary to achieve victory. And we had that victory a year ago, a year and a half ago. It's 2019 now. That was six months in 2017. Now, why all of a sudden we're declaring victory? For some reason, President Trump wanted to pull out. Fine. We want to pull out. That's fine. Call it cut and run. Please don't call it victory. Victory is when we go to a full-on war. Yes, we went to war with ISIS. Our special ops did unbelievably heroic things to achieve that victory. But it's not over. Jihadism is more powerful than it's ever been. ISIS has metastasized. It can rename itself jihadist, or as so many call it, Sharia supremacists continue to grow, continue to metastasize. And especially in Syria, the cauldron that has brewed radical Islamism, radical jihadists, has not changed. It's worsened. Assad's scorched-earth policy, genocidal approach, killing 600,000, displacing 10 million of the 21 million Syrians, has only made the radicalization worse, so that has not changed. Now, can we solve that? Absolutely not. Should we have troops deployed there? I'm not even necessarily in favor of that. I think a limited presence for intel is important, a limited presence to prevent our enemies, i.e. Turkey, Yes, they're a NATO ally, I get it. But Erdogan is a jihadist, is a neo-Ottoman aspiring caliphate leader. Our enemies of Al-Qaeda, of 
Jabhat al-Nusra, other Al-Qaeda-type ISIS-like organizations will continue to thrive there. Our enemies of Khomeinists, Iranian regime, Hezbollah adherents, Assadists, and Russia are all going to fill in that vacuum. And the price we paid in the last year and a half, there has been a buffer zone, there has been stability there that will be lost. And I think not only was it saddening and in many ways insulting to hear words of victory, especially Senator Paul's constant, just absurdly disgusting tweets about and comments on news and elsewhere about, yes, this is the time of the withdrawal. He's never been prouder of a president than he was this week at his declaration of victory and bringing the troops back. Come on. And now it's interesting that those folks who criticize folks like leaders like Senator Rubio and others for saying, well, they're only happy when we're at full-on war and deploying troops all over the planet in war. That's not true. That is complete nonsense. And in fact, to say that criticism of complete withdrawing special forces while we have special forces in Somalia and elsewhere, and that that dampening effect of, of a multi-pronged threat upon our closest ally in the region, if not in the world, Israel, is very different than saying that somehow leaving a few hundred special ops is a declaration of a, of a desire to have multiple military invasions and imperialistic desires to use our military everywhere and go to war. There were some, even in the conservative movement, that were saying that that's the neocons' desire, is to transplant democracy and it never works and only ends up allowing radicals to come to power. No, that's not the point. The point is the Islamists are decimating us in the ideological war, not only in the region but globally. They're decimating us in patience, in their strategic Approach. They may have lost the war for um, through ISIS in Syria, and we we won that regional area. But they are not tied to a landmass. In fact, they've shown whenever they get land, they can't seem to keep it for too long because we have far far superior military personnel and technology. But at the end of the day, This long battle, the Islamists have a constituency of almost a quarter of the world population. 30%, I believe, upwards could be 40%, could be 25 but a plurality of Muslims globally are part of Islamist large movements from the Brotherhood, the Jamaat, Islamiyah, and elsewhere, and have the quick potential to be radicalized and part of these movements. So what is our offense? Do we have an offense of advancing liberty? And that's more of an ideological strategy. That is an ideological, non-military approach. So this week, as we saw another attack kill four of our four Americans, equal to the number we've lost in the last three years there, you can't help but scratch your head and say, what is, does this not signal that we are withdrawing early? Does this not signal that we are leaving our allies to fend for themselves as they now will likely lurch closer to Tur- to Turkey, to Russia, to Assad. For the Kurds, probably to- closer to Assad. The Turks want to slaughter them and made that clear.
We're going to talk about Erdogan in the next segment here and what he really is, courtesy of the openness and honesty of an NBA star. (laughs) You know, it also bears noting that the Iranian Hezbollah axis and their militias refused to remove a significant presence in any troops or weapons from Syria. And I find it amazing how, and not surprising, that folks like Rand Paul tweets, Oh, Sunnis and Shias have been fighting each other forever, so what are we going to fix? Uh, excuse me, the Kurds are Sunni and ISIS is Sunni, so it's even the facts he's got wrong. It's a mess, yes, it's a mess, but strategically... We have to protect Israel. We have to be a part of the solution in that region and not allow it to implode. And again, like I told you before, our withdrawal, the only silver lining will be it'll make that region implode much more quickly. And ultimately, we may have to have a more significant deployment to protect Israel from threats of Iran, threats of Hezbollah, threats of Turkey's jihadism. Next, I want to I want to end this segment talking to you briefly about the two recent arrests of radical Islamists, one in Georgia and one here in Arizona. In Georgia, the FBI arrested 21-year-old Hashir Jalal Tahib in the metropolitan Atlanta area this week and charged him with planning a jihadi attack on the White House. Tahib reportedly planned to blast a hole the side of the White House with an anti-tank missile, then carry out a shooting spree on those within. According to the FBI, he was planning to launch the attack on January 17, the day after agents decided to take him into custody. One day away, a joint task force reported that Tahib was under investigation since last March when a tip from a concerned community member said, The coming Georgia resident had become radicalized, changed his name, and made plans to travel abroad. The FBI informant contacted Taib in September after the suspect put his vehicle up for sale. Posing as a potential buyer, the informant befriended Taib and eventually heard him admit he was selling the vehicle to raise money for a jihadi attack, according to the charges. Sounds like something out of the movie Homeland, but it's real. Then in Arizona here, we just had an 18-year-old kid arrested last week, wielding a knife at a police officer. At the time of the initial news reports, this 18-year-old was arrested. It almost appeared like it was a psychiatric incident. And by the way, it turned out it wasn't a psychiatric incident. He was acting on behalf of ISIS. They later updated the story four to five days later to say that it wasn't just some crazed kid that was going to commit suicide. No. Ismail Hamid intentionally or knowingly provided advice, assistance, direction, or management to the terrorist organization, which is listed under several former names under which the organization is known, including the Islamic State of Iraq, Hashem, ISIS. He's facing one count of terrorism under state law, Class 2 felony for that allegation. And Patrick Poole reminded us online that Arizona thankfully has this statute about terrorism, and some states 
The Islamists at groups like the Council on American Islamic Relations, like in Tennessee and elsewhere, have tried to prevent it from becoming law. And this individual with reams of evidence now of adherence to ISIS, we'll see come out in trial, has an allegedly giving material support and elsewhere to ISIS. He repeatedly called 911 and asked to speak to Sheriff's Deputy at Fountain Hill Substation on January 7. Hammond then began to throw rocks at the sergeant. And as many showed, this guy, when he finally imploded, wanted to do so by attacking government workers, most notably police officers. So my point about these two cases, there's many, many more. But my point to you is, if you notice, the stories I read to you, one second was Arizona Republic, the other is from a local Georgia media outlet. Where's the commentary from Muslims? And now we bring you the imam who knew this guy, and obviously most of the time they interview these Muslims, they either provide apologetics, they say they didn't know it, or they kicked him out of the mosque, whatever. Even back when the, the, the Muslim community and leadership was apologetic, they were interviewed, provided apologetics, they actually never took any responsibility that I can recall. The leaders were the Islamists who often even blamed the West, blamed media, that they shouldn't be interviewed. But at least they were interviewed. At least there was some subconscious connection link to the theopolitical movement of Islamism. Now, these stories, both of them, no commentary from any Muslims. doesn't matter. Even his faith wasn't even mentioned. It's not relevant. <laughs> and you wonder, where is the reform? You wonder why we can't get any traction in the Muslim reform movement when the stories now are becoming more and more ubiquitous. And it's so commonplace that... The faith doesn't matter. Ladies and gentlemen, this is surrender. It is surrender. I, as a Muslim, cannot have any reason or relevancy, as I testified to Congress many times. You guys can try to bring in white supremacists and other forms of terrorism related to completely different ideologies. If you want, just to make yourselves feel better, but the bottom line is the only ones that can help you with radical Islamism are liberal-minded Muslims. We are the only ones with the solutions to radicalization among the Muslim community. So, now it's not even being discussed. Before it was discussed and dismissed and denied and obfuscated. Now it's not even discussed and it's not even part of the stories. This is the beginning of complete surrender, ladies and gentlemen, complete surrender. So if you want to engage counter-Islamism, if you want to engage American identity versus Islamist identity, then we are going to need to make the links in the stories and to begin to hold local communities. This guy was a few miles from, this guy and his family lives a few miles down the road here, somewhere in the town next to where I live. And yet the media never contacted me, never contacted any reformers, never even made the connection that he was Muslim. We got a disease, a cancer. The vast majority of Muslims are here because they're escaping that cancer, but they're the only ones with the keys to treat it. They need to do it. The media needs to begin to have, the, our think tanks, our universities need to begin to have an offense of the advancement of American ideas, the cultural social contract and others against political Islam. These radicals are simply the tip, 
the tip of the iceberg. So I am always struck by the blindness, the, the, the vacuousness of those who cover Muslim issues and just feed right into making Islam into a race. And there's no better example of that. There's no better representation of that than to see how the two newest Muslim members of the United States Congress, Ilhan Omar from Congressman Ellison's district in Minnesota and Rashida Tlaib, from Michigan, how they're treated, their ideas, their radicalism, their anti-Semitism is completely ignored. Well, CNN proved me wrong this week in a poignant interview that exposed many things. So what I want to do for most of the rest of the program is walk through just a few seconds, minutes uh, at the most, a few clips of that interview with you and expose to you and show you how not only not ready for prime time Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is, but the depth of her radicalism, the depth of how she epitomizes, how she epitomizes what the Islamists are. And oh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the good congresswoman. And as she was being interviewed, by the way, it has in the bottom of the Chiron, first woman to wear hijab in Congress, first Somali refugee in Congress, first there was a list, and so many on Twitter, as she put that list out, corrected many of them. It was great to see Jewish leaders correct the fact that there have been Jewish refugees who served in Congress that escaped the Holocaust that came to the United States for freedom. and other examples of things that the Islamists like to claim that they're first in, when in fact there have been many Americans that just didn't wear it on their sleeve, that didn't smack of identity politics, that did their job, were Americans first, and let all the other hyphenated things fall away as they represented their entire district, and did not use that platform as a leapfrog for a political movement that has global tentacles, which is political Islam. So let's let's see what CNN said. Now, let me set the stage first. Ilhan Omar tweets out about Lindsey Graham and says that they got him. He's compromised. And the reason this upsets the Islamists so much is he was on the other side. He was in favor of toppling Assad. He was in favor of doing things that may ultimately help the Islamists. Now, obviously, so am I. But they're upset that now he has joined President Trump's strategy. And But the method, the ideas that they convey, were not against those ideas but basically trying to slander, smear Senator Graham through conspiracy theories. Listen. 
Republican Congressman Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, I believe we, ha we have this tweet, uh, saying they got him, he is compromised. Uh, and there it is. I wonder if you'd explain what, what you were talking about there. This, is, this has sparked a fair amount of criticism, uh, not just from Republicans. Can you explain that comment? So over the last three years, um, we have seen many times where uh, Senator uh, Lindsey Graham has told us how dangerous this president could be if we were, he was given the opportunity to be in the White House. And all of a sudden, he's made um, not only a, a 180 turnaround, but a 360 turnaround. Oh, so and that's back so to where he was. I'm pretty sure. Uh, that there is something happening um, with him, whether it is, um, uh, you know, uh, something that has to do with his uh, funding when it comes to running for, for office, whether it has uh, something to do with the polling that they might um, uh, have in, in his district, or whether it, it has to do, do with um, some sort of uh, leadership within uh, the Senate. He is somehow uh, compromised to no longer stand up for the truth. He is somehow compromised. That's classic Islamist culture. No proof, no evidence, and they later pressed her. Where's your proof? Where's your evidence? She had no response. She just said that was her opinion after being pressed. Now, she doesn't need more than that. She's a person of authority, so somebody of authority who says this, that becomes like gospel. That's the truth, because the Zionists, the evil Zionists, control the media. This is the, 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 the anti-Semitic trope that the radicals like Ilhan Omar spread. So their anti-Semitism is subtle. They will spread anti-Americanism when, when now she has a position of leadership. And you can tell, by the way, through her interview that She's mumbling. She's she, she's completely fumbling, unable to answer the question, and still reverting back to her conspiracy-laden trope. Now, also within this is homophobia, as S.E. Cup and so many others pointed out online this week, and that, you know, when they say he's compromised, she, she tried to come up with things in his district. District, the guy's a senator. He does not have a district. The entire state is his constituency. So she doesn't even know what she's talking about, but uh, she's fumbling. And you saw folks on the left try to defend Ilhan, saying, oh, no, 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 this is, she uh, just said he flipped. <laughs> flipped 360 degrees, which, by the way, puts him back where he was. Um, it's, it's just embarrassing. The culture, if you look at Arab media, as memory so, shows so frequently, is full of religious leaders and others. Who, who peddle completely fabricated conspiracy theories, come up with whatever they can pull out of their rectal data bank, as she was doing during this interview, making making crap up about funding, about whatever, uh, uh, positions on committees, which President Trump has no control over. All these things, complete nonsense. And layered deeper there is homophobia, by the way. where somehow that gets peddled around about Senator Graham, which is, I think, absurd and offensive, completely offensive. And yet the left 
the left, which likes to pride itself on protecting some of these issues, other than this interview on CNN, has still continued to laud her accomplishments. Still continue to do that. So the teaching point here is Islamism is here to stay. And by the way, this woman now was just given a seat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. The House Foreign Affairs Committee, which makes decisions about appropriation and funding to foreign countries. Why is that relevant? Well, let's listen to her position on Israel. Here she is on Israel. I do want to ask you also about your comments on Israel to remind people what you tweeted about Israel in 2012 during the offensive in Gaza. You wrote, Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. You've commented a lot since then, trying to explain what you meant by that. And I wonder just what your message is this morning as the first on our Game Changers series um, to uh, Jewish Americans who find that deeply offensive. Oh, uh, that's a really a regrettable way of, of expressing that. Um, I, I don't know um, how my comments would be offensive to, to Jewish Americans. My comments uh, precisely are addressing uh, what was happening uh, during the, the Gaza war. Um, and I am clearly speaking about the way that the Israeli uh, regime um, was uh, conducting itself uh, in, in that war. Can you believe that? Can you believe that, ladies and gentlemen? That ultimately, her response, when she said regrettable, I thought maybe she was going to regret what she wrote. No, what's regrettable is the anchor's expression of some of the Jewish American community's disgust with her anti-Semitism against Israel and the fact that she invoked Allah in their defeat. This is not a, a, a mild position that she had. It's basically calling for the end of Israel. She's defended the BDS movement. She's defended the sanctions, divestment, and boycott movement because she's anti-Semitic. She's anti-Israel. She doesn't disagree with certain policies of Israel. She disagrees with the entire state, which is exactly what the Islamists is one of the defining elements of global political Islamism of the Muslim Brotherhood and other radical Islamist organizations. And if you noted her response, her indignation, that they should have no problems with her position. She really has absolutely, she's clueless. It really is in line with Louis Farrakhan's positions. It's in line with Linda Sarsour's positions. It's in line with the Hezbollah sympathizer that helped Rashida Tlaib open her office this week also, as we saw pictures of various radical Islamists, ideological Islamists that are associated with these members of Congress. I mean, I, I think back and I cannot believe that she's even going to get a security clearance to be on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Why does an elected member of Congress automatically get a security clearance? Doesn't make any sense. 
On the one hand, I get it. We're a democracy, absolutely. The will of the people have spoken. They should have vetted these things during the election. And if they didn't, then that's their loss. Well, okay. But if there is security threat, I went through clearances, multiple clearances, to have made to have and maintain my top secret clearance as I served as a physician, but also taking care of members of Congress, taking care of generals, admirals, and others who are in very sensitive position, as I took care of their very sensitive health information. Now, you say that's a military assignment, it's not, it's an appointment or whatever it might be, so therefore that's what clearances are all about. Well, I, I still think there should be some, uh, you know, public vetting if there are issues regarding just like their tax returns and other things, if there are issues about their life that are relevant of concern, then that clearance should be questioned and it should be vetted publicly. But we won't. uh, Meanwhile, a BDS advocate for the destruction economically of Israel will now have a perch on deciding appropriations on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Well, we'll see. I'm sure I'll bring back this subject. People wonder where the voices of reformers are, why why we don't have more traction. Well, you see the bandwidth of attention to Muslims is being soaked up by bigots, anti-Semites of the Islamist leadership, and you have young folks who... Uh, I think, actually, she's not even competent as an Islamist. Uh, uh, She was mumbling through the interview. She really had no preparation uh, to be able to deal with the questions that were given. This was a tough interview. Most of the interviews she's had have been softball absurdities of interviews. Uh, But let's see if she ever enters uh, any controversial areas uh, during her testimonies. Unbelievable. Baffling just baffling. Last, you, you can't help but look at Enes Kanter, Turkish-American, who said, my problem is not with my country or my flag or the Turkish people. My problem is the regime right now. Now, when he's talking about regime, he's exactly right. He's talking about Erdogan, the radicals, the Islamists, the jihadists that's running the AKP, which is the Muslim Brotherhood of Turkey, and a true Islamist party. I'll remind you, Ilhan Omar, when she was talking about Israel, called it a regime. Another sign of gross anti-Semitism. They're a democracy. They are free market. And it's just, anyway... Counter had a tweet this week in which he released, and I don't know who made it, may have been made by some of his friends in the Gulen movement. Again, I've talked to you before, I'm not a fan of the Gulen movement, it's very secretive, it's, uh, I don't like, uh, you know, personality-driven entities, that one's driven by the personality of Fatullah Gulen, but at the end of the day, they are a persecuted, they are a persecuted group in Turkey. And to say that they tried to do a coup, I think, is absurd. And his video showed a comparison of Adolf Hitler to Erdogan. The the, the likenesses, the resemblance is just uncanny. 
not only physically, but with some of the things that he pulled out from Nazi history, including the Reichstag fire, including what's happening to journalists, what's happening to people who speak out against the regime, including how the Nazis started to slowly rise to power and then maintain power in the 30s. So, again, my point here is, where's the Islamists in America? Muslim leadership of the Council on American Islamic Relations, Islamic side of North America, who went on a trip to congratulate Erdogan on his election last June. They're too busy, too busy being sycophants of Erdogan and a true courageous Muslim leader who happens to be an NBA star is ignored, is marginalized, is dismissed. Hats off to the newspapers that are covering his story. I think it's an amazing story. But that is the story of a courageous Muslim that deserves attention. That is the story of somebody who takes on, if you look at sort of who in the world is responsible for radicalization of Muslims and the demonization of liberals, of reformists, Erdogan is in the top 10. King of Saudi Arabia is another one. Head of the Muslim Brotherhood is another one. Assad's another one. The Khomeinists are another one. So in, in the top 10 worst tyrants responsible for military, huge sums of money, that are dedicated to defeating reform, defeating modernization, and, and spreading bigotry and anti-Western hate and propaganda, Erdogan's regime, his is a regime, his regime is evil. He should not be part of NATO. And hats off to the NBA player who should be getting a lot more attention than he is for the courage he has shown in calling a spade a spade, tweeting out. I mean, he couldn't even go to London for participation in various NBA activities that happened to be there because there is a warrant out for his arrest. A warrant out for his arrest by the Turkish government. So, not a surprise that as the Turks spilled slowly out information on the Khashoggi affair, and the assassination that happened in Istanbul by the rogue Saudi intelligence ops. They also were asking for Gulen, and even there was some hint in the news that that trade might have happened, which would have been horrific if it did. They're also now getting a little bold and asking, putting out arrest warrants for NBA players. I hope President Trump didn't pull out of Syria because of the suggestion of Erdogan, but it does appear to be that way now. That's part of the reason they were trying to declare victory over and over this week, but it was a bit of a tough week to do that, wasn't it? A lot of moving parts, ladies and gentlemen. But folks like Cantor, folks like the people I work with, the Muslim Reform Movement, need reality checks from the rest of you need to have platforms. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Thank you for opening your mind and spirit and heart to the fact that there can be Muslims who condemn Islamism, understand the, the terror, the, the cancer of political Islam and theocracy and the need for us to reform against those things. Thank you for listening to my positions on 
these uh, Islamist uh, threats that we have domestically and abroad. Great to be with you. Share, subscribe, and I will see you next week. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.